when Paul Theroux left Cape Cod for a series of road trips along the country roads of the southern U.S., he figured he'd meet a lot of interesting people and enjoy some southern hospitality along the way. He didn't expect one topic that kept coming up, and that was the Civil War. You know, it's as if the Vietnam War never happened and the Second World War never happened, but the Civil War is overwhelmingly present, and I think it's present because people feel defeated. On today's Travel with Rick Steves, Paul Theroux explores the Deep South. And historian Mark Van Els recommends places you can visit in Europe to learn how American doughboys helped end the First World War. The most important American battle of all was the Meuse-Argonne offensive, which occurred just to the north and west of Verdun. This is where the American section was during the final so-called grand offensive at the end of the war. Remembering World War I and wandering the Deep South. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. What have you noticed when you visit parts of our country that are far away from where you live? In just a minute, Paul Theroux tells us what a year's worth of wandering the country roads of the Deep South revealed to him about the USA. And later in the hour, historian Mark D. Van Els returns to travel with Rick Steves to share more about the American role in World War I when the Doughboys joined the Allied forces in France back in 1917. Professor Van Els recommends places we can visit to better understand what they faced during what was called the Great War. Let's open the hour with author Paul Theroux. He recently published his 10th travel-themed book about his road trip discoveries in the small towns of Dixie. From the birthplaces of the blues and bluegrass to small towns that won't ever show up on anybody's top ten lists, Theroux uncovers the convictions and the contradictions that help make the rural South feel a little foreign to a Yankee visitor. His book is called Deep South. Paul, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure to talk to you. You know, Paul, when I think about Paul Theroux, I'm thinking exotic, foreign, faraway destinations. This is your first book about the United States, isn't it? Yes, it is. And it's not really about the United States. It's really about a portion of the United States, a very coherent part of it that's not written about much in travel. It's mentioned a lot, and there's a lot of fiction about it, but it's a place that had always been in my mind. Mm-hmm. And it probably is the place in the country that feels more like a foreign country than any other place in the United States, I would imagine. Yes, it does seem remote. It seems different. It seems itself And I'm thinking of the rural South, not the cities. So what states were you in generally? The deep South for me begins in South Carolina. You know, it's a day and a half drive from my home on Cape Cod, a long day to Virginia, and then a day or so to South Carolina. South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, and the northern part of Louisiana. And not cities. Nashville's a lovely city. Birmingham's nice. Tuscaloosa, Atlanta, they're all great. But I was in the rural areas, and the rural areas retain the southernness much more than the cities do. I had a sense, reading through your book, that it wasn't a list of great sights. It didn't seem like you had a sightseeing agenda. It was more meandering and and getting to know the people. You know, I've never been a sightseer. I avoided antebellum mansions and Civil War battlefields. I saw them, but I didn't write about them. To me, they didn't hold as much interest as what I think of as human architecture, I mean, the antebellum, the superfluous amplitudes of the great southern colonnaded house is wonderful. But when you talk to someone who has a story, there's a book. You know, there's the, right. that's the essence of a journey, I think. By the way, when you say antebellum, that's architecture that survives from before the Civil War. Is that right? Yes, there's plenty of giant. You know, if you have slave labor, you can build a pretty big <laughs> house. 
they were and, and built some, by the slaves. And, and that did survive, and that might be on somebody's sightseeing list, but I can imagine when you're writing a book, the gold for you is finding conversations and getting to know people. And you must have had some moments where you thought, man, this is just rich for the book, and other moments that you thought, eh, there's nothing here. How did you get people to open up and talk and really share and, and get intimate? Well, several ways. People don't open up in the States. We are very averse to personal questions. We are full of opinions. They'll tell you what they want to tell you. But when you ask the kind of question that you would ask the average Indian, Gujarati in India or, you know, a Kenyan, you cannot ask an American, how many children do you have? How much money do you make? Where do you work? Where do you live? They'll say, what are you writing a book? Are you from the government? You know, (laughs) you really have to make friends. And once you've kind of gained some trust, people will be forthcoming. I found the stories amazing. It's not so much personal history, it's national history. It's the way that people are involved in the civil rights movement, in farming, in sharecropping, mm-hmm. in poverty. I mean, the rural South is very poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cities don't show it. Go to Atlanta, you think, oh, this is a great place. Or Tuscaloosa, you say, this is wonderful. Go a few miles south of Tuscaloosa, maybe 15, 20 miles south of Tuscaloosa, And you're in the area of Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, that James Agee book from late 1930s. And it looks much the same. There are plenty of well-wishers, plenty of people trying to help out there with housing and welfare. But the city or the town of Greensboro, Moundville, are still locked somewhat in the 1930s. And the houses still stand. They're very poor. There's not much work. Same is true of Mississippi, up Highway 61. So your question is, how do you get to people to talk to them? I hang around. Don't look like a tourist. Don't presume. You know, it's not a TV show where you show up and stick a microphone in their face and say, <laughs> you know, I got a camera here. Will you talk to me? It's much more oblique way of showing up and might mean just sitting around and shooting the breeze for a day or two right. or longer. And also returning. My subtitle of my book, Deep South, is four seasons on back roads. So I met people in the fall of 2012, and then in the winter of 2013, and then in the spring of 2013, I kept going back. And each time I went back and talked to people, they told me more. They trusted me more. They were glad to see me. I was glad to see them. It's not like taking a trip through Angola, where you see people once, and you write Mm -hmm. about how awful the place is, and then move on. It's not like that at all. Writing about America is a totally different experience from anything I'd had traveling in the world. And I mean, in a very positive way. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Paul Theroux about his new book, Deep South, his experience in the southern United States. When you hit the jackpot, it was like you you wrote this, the goodwill was like an embrace. What does that mean? I felt like one of the family. People are very accepting and they're very inclusive. And if they trust you, white or black in the South, you're not one of them, but they will take you aboard. And they they have great manners. They have this habit that you find in other countries of feeding you, mm-hmm. welcoming you in the in the house. I had this experience again and again of you get along with them and they say, come over and eat. Yeah. So you didn't feel like a rich New England voyeur. No, I am a rich New England voyeur. <laughs> so, but passing myself off as a vagabond. But no, no, I'm just a bespectacled senior writer, I suppose. But... I was treated, I think, very well, and in fact, treated as an equal, which you can't ask for more than that. But I did hear great stories, but I also found that it's a part of America that's overlooked. It's very poor. 
Uh, no one cares about it. People talk about the middle class. Look for a middle class person in the Delta. You won't find one. Right. It's all people living below the poverty line. You talked about uh, the Civil War is still recent in their minds as you travel through. Yes, that's true. I found that something that never happens in the North. In New England, every town has a Civil War memorial. The one that I always think of is in Thomaston, Maine. It says, one country, one flag, and it shows a soldier on the plinth. It's in the village green in Thomaston. No one ever talks about the war. No one ever looks at it. Uh, on the 4th of July, people put flowers on it or put a wreath on it on Memorial Day. In the South, people talk about it constantly. They talk about the war. And <laughs> if you talk, certain people will blame you for if you're a Northern, you're a Yankee, you go down there, you get blamed for it. Well, that's kind of interesting because hmm. then you get into... You know, it's as if the Vietnam War never happened and the Second World War never happened, but the Civil War is overwhelmingly present. And I think it's present because people feel defeated. They cling to that as a symbol of their defeat, of the federal government getting involved. Also, they talk about the Civil Rights Movement. I mean, the Civil Rights Movement was also a war and a defeat for many people. It was a victory for the Civil Rights Movement, mm -hmm. but it was a defeat for the people who opposed it. So you hear about those two wars, Civil War and the Civil rights movement come up again and again, and with you know various sorts of emphasis. To me, it's something to listen to, to write about, and you know I'm interested in, in what people think about it, and and it always elicited great stories. It relates to your experience at the gun show in in Natchez, where it was the main event of the town culturally. Uh, it was in the convention center, packed with people, and you talked about how you found people at their most polite when they're at the gun show. Lots of Civil War paraphernalia. And then the mood changed when you said you're from Massachusetts. Well, that's true. Natchez, by the way, is in Mississippi, and it's on the Mississippi River. It's a great place. Vicksburg up the road was under siege from northern troops, so they have a tough time. But the gun show, gun shows in general are very revealing. Gun shows, football games, church services, anything that brings people together where they have a common purpose. I mean, at a football game, they're interested in winning and their team. At a gun show, they agree on so many things. They agree on generally politics, uh, the government, you know, how to raise your kids, whether you should have a gun. And people are very polite. I mean, no one is more polite than a man with a loaded gun facing another man with a loaded gun. At a gun show, they're not loaded. They're secured with the plastic tape, but still carrying a gun or a knife. Everyone's polite. No one steps on each other's toe. And uh, people are very forthcoming. They're forthcoming in the same way that they are as I say, at a church. And I found churches, I made lots of friends just mm. going to church services and listening, praying, talking. and Coffee afterwards? Churches, yeah, coffee. More than coffee, often, uh, often a meal afterwards mm. that, because yeah. the food in southern churches is often served, uh, people eat afterwards. They go spend two or three hours at the service and then it's 12.30, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, they, they eat. Paul Thru is famous for writing travel books, books that turn exotic, faraway destinations into a shared experience. His latest is called Deep South. It's about his road trips around the southern U.S., from the Blue Ridge Mountains to the Delta and through the Ozarks. Paul's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. To me, it was a wonderful and rich experience. And, you know, if you're writing about traveling from Cairo to Cape Town, as I did in Dark Star Safari, the book is about how awful the trip is, how difficult the trip is. Yeah, I saw the pyramids and I saw, you know, the Sudan and Ethiopia and everything else. But most of that book is about 
the difficulty of getting from one place to another. When you write about America, and you, Rick, must have had this experience again and again, you're not writing about the difficulty of getting from A to B. You're writing about the people that you meet because there's no difficulty. The roads are great. Hmm. Your hmm. car's purring along. Yeah, that's so true. Or you're in a plane or whatever it is, and you arrive. I mean, there's no struggle unless you invent the struggle by saying, you know, you're going up the uh, Appalachian Trail or on a boat down the Mississippi. Apart from that, I mean, you can invent a difficult trip, but travel in America isn't difficult. In fact, anyone can get in a car and do my trip. And I urge people who are listening to this, maybe read the book, get a good itinerary, and you find some great restaurants and some nice people. Take me back to the place where I first saw the light. To that sweet sunny south, take me home. Where all my mockingbirds sang me to sleep in the night. Oh, why was I tempted wrong? There's more with Paul Theroux and the journeys he highlights in his book Deep South in just a minute on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. Later in the hour, we'll explore sites you can visit to remember the American contributions to the First World War in Europe. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Paul Theroux, and Paul's newest book is Deep South, the story of his experience meandering on a road trip, coming back four different seasons, and getting to know the people. You know, Paul, it's so interesting, this whole football, church, gun show, opportunity for people to gather together. And you talked in your book how if you kind of like go to the mood in the gun show, it's not about guns. It's about people getting together. Uh, You mentioned... uh, a beleaguered sort of gang of people, weakened with their backs against the wall, dealing with getting over a lot of humiliations. Talk a little more about that. The humiliation is, a lot of it is having lost the Civil War, but it's also the federal government becoming involved in their lives, in state laws. The Civil Rights Movement was a lot about how the federal government sent troops to integrate schools. It happened in the, at the University of Mississippi. A lot of the people in the South feel that the federal government has no right to tell them what to do. Mm-hmm. They said, William Faulkner said this. Now, William Faulkner is a very fair-minded person, but he objected to the federal government becoming involved when James Meredith was having problems with the University of Mississippi. Faulkner didn't help him. Faulkner said, we'll do this in our own time, in our own way. Faulkner was very opposed to Washington, D.C. becoming involved in the politics of Oxford, Mississippi. But they did, and after Faulkner died, James Meredith was admitted to the University of Mississippi. Faulkner lived on the campus. So a lot of what you hear, it's not just that either and the war. A lot of it is being abandoned by the government, abandoned by the politicians. Education in the South, in lots of parts of the South, in Alabama, in Georgia, in Mississippi, has been defunded. So Mm. they feel cheated. They feel cheated by their own politicians. They feel cheated by the manufacturing, which left. They went to China. They went to Mexico. So this is these gatherings are like a, a men's clubhouse for self-respect, I think you called it. It could be, yeah. A gun show certainly is. Um, mm-hmm. It's like a Masonic lodge in some respects. But I mean, the church is similarly a place where people will speak their mind about things and talk about how to solve problems. And not only by praying and getting mm-hmm. to heaven, it's also figuring out jobs, work, school, family, raising children, getting some kind of welfare During the Civil Rights Movement, a lot of churches were bombed. I used to wonder why the churches seemed a diabolical thing to do, to Mm -hmm. bomb a church. 
When you go to the South and you see who goes to church and what they get from a church, which is a form of community, service, family, spirit, song, and generally a feeling of well-being and, and unity, you see how a community is devastated when the church is bombed or destroyed or burned. So I didn't know that. When I was a youth and going to church, we went to church and then we went home and you know, said some prayers and went home and had a chicken. We didn't linger at the church and get sort of advice from right. the priests. But if you're traveling, and as a traveler you know this, you look for a place where people gather. You try to meet people. You try to gain their trust, and you want them to talk to you. And the South is full of such great stories. It sounds like a, a whole land of low-hanging fruit when it comes to getting to know a, a culture and getting to know a people. As a native New Englander, there were times Paul Theroux said he felt like he was a foreigner in his own country as he wandered the back roads of America south of the Mason-Dixon line. He's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves, reporting on the welcomes he found, the people he met, and the conclusions he formed. His book about his southern road trips is called Deep South. It's published by Houghton Mifflin. And James is calling from Virginia Beach. James, thanks for your call. Hi, how you doing, Rick uh, and Paul? I grew up in Washington, D.C. metro area, which is, you know, wall-to-wall stores, except in the residential areas. But I met and married a lady from Asheville, Alabama. So the first time you drive down there to Alabama, you're on paved roads, Interstate 20, then you get off, you're on gravel roads, and then you, this is in the 1970s, you're on dirt roads. I was married at a church where two dirt roads meet, and none of the houses or farms have addresses. They're just rural routes. But I found that I was accepted by the people, you know, when I came in and was quiet and, and showed that I could do things that they do. You know, I could get on the truck and I could ride out into the field and I could throw bales of hay up on the truck with my cousins who were surprised what a city boy could do. <laughs> the best thing you did was throw the bales of hay out. Help out. Be part of the process. That's the way to make friends. So, James, you found that getting off of the, the paved roads was a, a good uh, tactic if you wanted to connect with the people then. Now, of course, some of those farms actually have addresses. You know, 40 years later, they actually have addresses. But then it was, you know, like Rural Route 2, and the mailman knew where the people were living in their farms and then, of course, their trailers, you know. And your family, everybody lives near each other, right? Your brother lives across the street. Your cousin lives 50 feet down in a trailer, right? You know, so it's the whole family. <laughs> but if you, if you hack up a gravel roads, you go to the Ozarks, go to Arkansas. Arkansas, to me, was a revelation. It's like walking through a time warp. I know that Clinton was governor for there for almost 12 years, but <laughs> it exists as though at a time warp. And there's plenty of good people at gravel roads there, too. But it's, it's like modernity never happened. Wow. That sounds That's so good. You know, I, I found the people unpretentious. You find them self-reliant. If you're living on these farms, you have to do almost everything for yourself because a little town doesn't have much, right? You know, one grocery no, store, true. one barber shop, one butcher, one car repair, right? You make do without a lot of choices that a lot of people think are their uh, essentials. People yeah. in metro areas get overwhelmed by too many choices of goods and services, right. and these people don't have those choices. The self-reliance and self-respect that people have, that's definitely the case. And th those are wonderful people to meet. James, thanks for your call. Okay, thank you. Take care. Take care. Yeah, thank you, James. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Paul Theroux. His new book is Deep South, about his meandering road trip through the southern part of the United States. Paul, you talk about how you approached the town of Allendale, and it reminded you of Doomsday. What was that like coming into Allendale, and how did that represent uh, the region? Route 301 used to be the great north-south route to Florida. 
was displaced by Interstate 95. So everything along 301, you know, the gas stations, the stores, the motels, were suddenly obsolete. No one needed them anymore. And so the towns all along 301 died. Allendale seemed to me to epitomize what happens when a place is forgotten or left aside. So 95 is, it might be 35, 40 miles east of it. Everything along 301, and especially in Allendale, big restaurants that are decayed, gone. Looks like the end of the world. It says lobster on it, or you know, mm. elite interstate, whatever. Or, or you, you wrote about businesses where the sign says, a closed business, where it says, went to Mexico. Oh, that, there's that too, yeah. Those are aspects of America that are, you find in, in rural areas. Of course, some cities are struggling. Detroit struggles. But it's, mm-hmm. there's so many places in the South. The small towns are losing population, losing business, and are kind of uh, below the radar. For me, driving south from Atlanta was, was really a culture shock situation. I couldn't imagine the contrast I saw from Atlanta to towns in the south of Georgia. But I should say quickly that in every town that you come to, if a town is, looks like it's failing, there will be someone or a group in that town trying to revive it mm-hmm. or doing some sort of outreach. There's a, an organization called Allendale County Alive. It's in Allendale, run by a man called Wilbur Cave. Wilbur Cave works every day trying to help people fix their roofs and get them out of trouble and get them with, fixed up with a mortgage or, or some sort of help, repair work, mm-hmm. leaky pipes, whatever it is. Wilbur's there, Wilbur and his team. So you look at Allendale and say, this place, great contrast, it's having a hard time. But I was interested in the people who were trying to help, trying to change, people who are optimistic and people who had deep roots there and will never leave. Wilbur's family's probably lived there for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. He's black. His family was were slaves. This is the low country of South Carolina. So it's true. You find tragic circumstances, but you also find, I mean, I'm very, very curious about people who want to help and people who want to change and, and want to affect change. I found that in Greensboro, Alabama. I found it in the Delta. I found it in Greenville. And I found it in Arkansas, too. My story is not a gloomy tale of abandoned towns. It's also about people who are trying to help and trying to be part of the process to change things. Paul, you've written uh, quite a bit about poor communities and societies in Africa, and now this book called The Deep South here. How would you compare the um, poor people you met in Africa with the struggling lower-class people you met in the United States? There are parts of the South that look like Zimbabwe. I mean, there's no question about that, but they have a different history. I mean, it's quite different. America's not a colonial situation in the South, but it is suffers from the same sort of globalization, which means looking for a new plantation, looking to outsource to make more money. So there's plenty of manufacturing in the South that left, that went to Mexico, India, China, or elsewhere. Poverty around the world takes different forms. So there's sort of parallel situations, but they're not really the same. The reasons for the poverty is not the same. The poor in America, though, there are children who go to bed hungry in America. Infant mortality rates in Alabama and Mississippi are very high. Maybe not high when you compare them to infant mortality rates in Africa, but they're high. This is a a first world country with lots of money and a great government. The idea that infant mortality and access to medical care should be an issue in the South is a cause for concern. That's, you know, part of the book. But I must say, I love driving in the South. I love the landscapes. I liked reading the books about the South. I like Southern literature, Faulkner, Flannery O'Connor. I like the music. So it's much more than a book about people struggling and people in poverty. You wrote about just the pure joy of road tripping and just talked about road candy sliding all over your car. Yeah, the zen of driving. I don't think there's another country in the world 
where you can get in a car and drive 600 or 1,000 miles. I mean, one day I did drive, I drove 1,000 miles home hmm. from South Carolina to Cape Cod, Massachusetts. It took me, you know, a lot of hours. At the end of it, I was in a sort of Zen state. But no country in the world has our roads. Anywhere you go in America, virtually everywhere you go, if there's an interstate or a road, you'll find at the end of the day a motel, a mm -hmm. restaurant, and probably and kind of interesting people. Yeah. You can't do that in Russia. You can't do it in India. You can't do it in Brazil. I mean, there's roadblocks. You know, in India, there's an elephant in the road. In Russia, the roads run out. It's, it's gravel or there's a hassle or there's a roadblock. In Europe, it's one language after another. In, in America, we have this tremendous freedom to travel from one place to another. And it's a very liberating sense that you have when you're traveling in the States. If you don't have to get on a plane, you don't have to go through the TSA, you just get in your car and go. As you've discovered from your hometown, just the diversity. You, you drive for a few hours and you have cultural diversity to enjoy as well. Yes, it's true. Travel should be an experience of liberation. You should feel liberated and enlightened when you travel. And unfortunately, when, when we travel, we go to the airport, we're asked a lot of questions, you take your shoes off, you go through metal detectors. The travel experience is diminished by the intense scrutiny that you get from security people. I understand why it happens, but it doesn't happen when you're in your car, tra mm -hmm. traveling from Cape Cod to Allendale, South Carolina, or Tuscaloosa, or Greenville, or to Arcola, Mississippi, or you know, up there to Harrison, Arkansas. It doesn't happen. You just get in your car. It's like a classic flying carpet. That's Re a really wonderful. Good case for a road trip. Paul Theroux, a thoughtful traveler, he said, "Tourists don't know where they've been, and travelers don't know where they're going." Paul chronicles a series of all-season road trips he took into the small towns and back roads of the southern U.S. in his book Deep South. You'll find more about Paul Theroux in this week's edition of Travel with Rick Steves, and that's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Roy is calling in from Cheyenne in Wyoming. Thanks for calling, Roy. Yeah, I just wanted to say that getting off the beaten path helped me have a very interesting experience in the Deep South, too. Uh, there was a Civil War surplus store in Kennesaw, Georgia, which is around Atlanta, and in that store, the guy was packing a gun, and he looked like Stonewall Jackson. He thought he was, actually, I think, the reincarnation, and... He had some very interesting attitudes about race. Uh, why don't we just say that he had memorabilia that he was selling and displaying that honored, I guess, the segregation period, the Jim Crow statue period, you know, things like that. But here's what the irony is. It was off the beaten path because right across the street, there is a transportation museum that celebrates the Civil War, but it's a safe family place, you know, something that's on the press trip list or the itineraries for people to go to. But that property has these gigantic trees that obscure this little Civil War surplus store where that colorful character with his, you know, why don't we say less than politically correct views has. And I just, if I hadn't thought of going around to look and see that, it, I wouldn't have found it. But it, it shows you that when you, you kind of get away from the safe things, you know, and you go off the beaten path, you can really have a culture shock because I've grown up in Wyoming all my life. And I, it was, I was just shocked when me and the other people were there. I, I couldn't believe they would have anything like that openly displayed. Yeah, when you're off the beaten track, you hear a lot of amazing tales. I mentioned Harrison, Arkansas. Uh, Harrison, Arkansas is a place notorious for the Klan in its time, but there are a lot of good people there, too. So you find both. But if you don't get off yeah, the beaten path, true. you'll find uh, homogeneity that you're not traveling for. So that's the bottom line. If you line. stay on the super slab of the interstate, no, you won't find that at all. <laughs> all right, Roy. Hey, thanks for your call. 
Okay, thanks, thanks, Roy. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Paul Theroux. His new book is Deep South. One thing impressive about the South is how strong family lineage is and how important it is to people. In the North, people don't really you know, brag about where their family goes back to quite so much, I've found. That's partly true, although I, mean, you know, I come from New England and people are, often talk about their pedigree in ah, New England. Maybe that's a um, West Coast thing then, yeah. Oh yeah, definitely a West Coast thing. There are family names in New England and people claim long pedigree, but in the South, that's true too. A lot of towns in the South are named after people. They're named after families. So the roots go deep. What's really not taken account of in the South, in America generally, is there are parts of the states where people have as hermetic, as deep root and existence, as isolated as people in the Punjab in India or people in Western Kenya, but established in the same way that rural communities in other parts of the world are established. It's not as though everyone's interchangeable in the States. And one of the lessons of the South you find is that you need to respect the traditions of a place. You need to respect the customs, the habits, and they do have them. The rural South is an established place with its own rules, its own culture. When people come from the outside, they don't always get that. They think, I'm in America. This is a land of immigrants. Well, a lot of people in the South don't have a story of immigration. They have a story of slavery, or they have a story, but they don't remember where, you know, when their relatives came. And it's something that needs to be respected. You're right. We, we think as Americans, we just kind of believe we're a mobile society and, and we are this yeah. melting pot, but there is not that mobility in the South quite so much and might explain some of the pride and some of the deep roots. Um, and you can find that in, in different dimensions of society when you visit as a traveler. That's definitely true. And I also think that one of the positive things that came out of my trip was that people look for, you know, the real America. I didn't really understand America, where it's been, where it is now, and where it's going till I visited the South. And I found there is an idea of America. There's something that exists there. That's, there's an eternal idea. It's about more than the Civil War and more than the South. It's about people with a permanent allegiance and with a sense of giving service. The South is full of people who join the army. One of the way out of a poor town in the South is to join the military, men and women. They join up, they fight, and they die. And it takes great patriotism to do that. So the patriotism that I saw in the South the sense of America was something that was a great reward for me, and I found it on the back roads. So when you think of what ties the South together as a rich culture, we've got many dimensions that have come out of this conversation. We've got the deep roots, we've got the Civil War heritage, we've got the culture of service, we've got uh, people staying together because they need each other, because there's not the affluence or the many different options and opportunities. It really is understandable that it is a tight-knit and proud slice of America. It is. And also, something that you might mention is struggle. People have struggled. They've struggled to get a life. They've struggled against each other. They've struggled together. And this sense that they know each other very, very well, better than any outsider could know them. So that the struggle, too, is something that binds them. A lot of people were enemies that are now friends. Would that go across racial lines, Paul? Yes, it does. That would be very interesting to come out of that struggle to realize we've got a lot in common. That's exactly what you find. It's what you find. They realize that it's a common pursuit, that this is how America was made by people joining together to make something. What a beautiful revelation and a a good excuse to take a road trip into the Deep South. Paul Theroux, thank you very much for sharing with us a misunderstood and underrated corner of our fascinating country. And uh, it's all covered in your book, The Deep South. Thank you, Rick, and good traveling. Happy travels. The history of the First World War can turn up in some of the most unexpected places. Up next, we explore the American role in World War I. 
and some of the sites where you can remember and pay tribute along with the Europeans on their own home turf. This is Travel with Rick Steves. If you ever get to visit any of the important battle sites of World War I in Europe, you won't hear many American accents among the visitors. Few Americans know much about the history of the war to end all wars and the American role among the Allies. But when the American doughboys joined on the front lines of World War I in Europe in 1917 and 18, it was America's first large-scale military action overseas. Mark D. Van Els wants you to know the stories of the American soldiers who fought in the bloodiest battles the world had ever seen a hundred years ago. He researched the letters of soldiers and eyewitnesses, and he's written America and World War I, a traveler's guide. Professor Van Els, welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, when you have a great war, a great event, and there's many anniversaries of that great event, but the centennial of a great war is unique because it's the first great, you know, marking of that event where the people who fought it are no longer here, and there's no living mm-hmm. memory of that war. So that makes the centennial a little bit different than 50 years later. As we think about the centennial of World War I, I know from reading your book that you're passionate about this. How can we, in our travels, design our sightseeing so that, that we get a more vivid understanding of it. Can you just give us a, a little primer? First of all, let's talk about World War I-related sites right here in the United States. There are lots of them. Some are fairly well marked and some are not marked at all, and there's lots of things in between. Uh, there were, for example, 32 different training camps across the United States from Fort Lewis, Washington, what's now Fort Lewis, then known as Camp Lewis, Washington, to Camp Devons in Massachusetts, Uh, And that's where they turned raw recruits and draftees into soldiers. There were other kinds of training camps out there for uh, specialized training. Interestingly, one was located in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. It was Mm. called Camp Colt, and it was a tank training facility. And the Army actually built barracks and buildings and things like this literally right on the Gettysburg battlefield. And the commander of the camp, by the way, was a young officer named Dwight D. Eisenhower, who never got overseas in World War I, but of course played a big role in World War II. Now, this is an amazing war when you think that it was the first war with air power. It was uh, 50 years after the, the Civil War. There were black soldiers. or What was the role of black soldiers? Yeah, no, there was a very important role, and oftentimes a neglected role as well. You know, we're still, in World War I, we're still basically 50 years away from the Civil War. There are still people alive who had been slaves and remembered slavery, mm-hmm. and the racism that went along with that was still very, very pronounced. So in World War I, we need soldiers. African Americans were oftentimes willing to volunteer, and many clamored, in fact, to get into the Army. The Army wasn't sure that they wanted mm-hmm. African American soldiers. Most were used for labor details, building roads, bridges, these types of things. Uh, But there were some who did get into combat. Uh, The U.S. Army, in fact, was very reluctant to put African-American soldiers into combat, tended to give them low-grade officers. They they had white officers Mm. who tended not to be that good, frankly, to begin with, and so the results were perhaps predictable. Mm. Uh, But the Army also turned over many African-American fighting units to the French, who used them very effectively, and they fought very well. Most famously, there's the so-called Harlem Hellfighters from New York. They fought under French command in some very critical battles. They also had a really great jazz band and may well be responsible for turning France onto jazz. So in addition to being important on the battlefield, uh, they also left a cultural legacy in France as well. 
This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Professor Mark D. Van Els, and his book is called America in World War I, A Traveler's Guide. Mark, when we think of wars, we kind of also remember, especially with our Vietnam heritage, uh, if the rationale of the war was understood, and was it supported back home, and how were the troops received when it was over? How did World War I fare in that regard? Yeah, World War I was actually very controversial. The war, of course, had been going on for many years before we got involved. And Americans could pick up a newspaper and read about Verdun and the Somme and think, you know, I don't want to send my boy into that. So it was actually a big debate among Americans. Should we side with our allies, Britain and France? Should we just stay out of it? Isolationist sentiment in America was much stronger Mm -hmm. back in these days. But public opinion did eventually come around to joining the war. I mean, there were episodes, for example, like the sinking of the Lusitania. That happened in 1915, and we don't get involved until 1917. But that was but sort of the did, Pearl Harbor that got us involved, wasn't it? Well, it happened a few years before we got involved, mm-hmm. but it, it certainly did turn off the American public to the Germans. It seemed right. uh, maybe we can't be neutral if they're sinking passenger ships, even though it's pretty clear there were at least some munitions in that ship. Mm. It damaged the way Americans viewed Germans. It made it harder for more Americans to feel neutral. But also there were problems along the Mexican border. The situation was we were neutral, but we were supplying Britain and France with goods. So Germany had a rationale. In their mind, sure. They tried to stop that trade coming from America to the Allied ports with their U-boats, their submarines sinking American ships, Americans are beginning to lose their lives. And when the German submarine campaign intensified in early 1917, that helped lead many Americans to the conclusion that we had to go to war with Germany. Your book is subtitled A Traveler's Guide to World War I. And when you go to Europe, there's all sorts of uh, powerful war museums. I know the War Museum in Vienna is great. The Imperial War Museum in London is arguably the best in the area. You've got the wonderful military museum in Paris at Les Invalides near Napoleon's tomb. Just outside of Paris in Meaux, M-E-A-U-X, is an impressive new war museum about World War I. But talk a little bit about battlefields and where we can get the best sense of the trench warfare and so on. In your mind, where are the most evocative battlefields from World War I that we might want to work into our itineraries? Well, if you want to know about the American experience specifically, I guess I could mention three basic places. Around the area of Chateau Thierry, in the summer of 1918, the Americans were very much involved in helping to blunt a German offensive in that area. Uh, There's a very large and beautiful war memorial near Chateau Thierry. Nearby is the famous uh, battlefield at Belle Wood, where the Marine Corps basically became famous. Mm. Uh, right near the Belle Wood battlefield, right adjacent to it, is an American military cemetery mm-hmm. containing many of the, the casualties of that battle. It's called the Ain Marne uh, American Cemetery. Just across the street from that, by the way, is a chapel built by American veterans of the 26th Division from it was a New England National Guard unit, so it's sort of a memorial to uh, some of the soldiers from New England. In the church, you'll find lots of stained glass with Franco-American themes. You can find French explorers, mm-hmm. and there's a stained glass of the Marquis de Lafayette and George Washington next to each other, a doughboy and a poilu, which is a nickname for a French soldier. So that's actually a very interesting place right nearby there. And there was two other battles that had a particularly strong association with Americans? Yes. Everyone knows Verdun in eastern France. But not far from Verdun are two places where American soldiers had their biggest offensives of the war. 
Uh, just to the south and east of Verdun is a place called San Miel, uh, which in September of 1918 was the first significant American offensive of the war. It was sort of a, sort of a lost part of the front, and the Americans uh, pushed the Germans back several miles, and you can find some memorials there. There's a very large colonnade on a hill, for example, called Mont Sec. gives great views of the battlefield. And near a place called Tiacour is the American cemetery. It's called the San Miel Cemetery, but it's actually several miles away from the actual city of San Miel itself, which has some particularly good architecture and sculpture there. And then the most important American battle of all was the Meuse-Argonne Offensive, which occurred just to the north and west of Verdun. Between the Argonne Forest, which is a very thickly wooded area, and the Meuse River, uh, this is where the American section was uh, during the final so-called Grand Offensive at the end of the war. A particularly bloody battle. It was a difficult environment to operate in. Uh, there were hills, and of course the woods of the Argonne Forest were very difficult. Uh, they had to cross ridge lines and uh, hills and things like this. That's where America suffered most of its casualties, but it was also America's biggest battle of the war. Uh, America's largest World War I cemetery is near a village called Romaine. There are 14,000 Americans buried there. And at a place called Montfaucon, that my French isn't that good, there's a very large colonnade, which gives an observation point over the entire battlefield area. It's really quite spectacular and maybe the most sacred American ground of the First World War. So all of these battlefields and uh, memorials and cemeteries and so on, I guess most of them are in the, in the vicinity of Verdun, which is between Paris and the German border. Very easy to explore around there and find uh, sites just off the road that just are so evocative that, that really you can feel what it must have been like back then in the, as, as right. bombs turned it into a lunar landscape. And, and those were some tough French words that you brought up there, so we'll be sure to have those names in the show details on our website in the radio section at ricksteves.com. You mentioned uh, cemeteries, and I, I know from my World War II site seeing that a lot of times the enlisted men would be buried in Europe and the officers' bodies would have the option to be sent home, and uh, the families of the officers said the officers would prefer to be buried with their men in Europe where they fell. What uh, is the story with the American casualties from World War I, 55,000 or so? Uh, were they mostly buried in Europe or were they shipped home? Yeah, uh, families had an option. They could either bring their loved ones home at government expense and have them buried in their home communities. They could have them relocated to an American military cemetery overseas. I mean, there were, there were little battlefield cemeteries all over the place, so they mm -hmm. were sort of consolidated into one place. Uh, you could have your loved one buried there. Or the third choice was to simply leave them where they were. Uh, most people opted to bring their loved ones home. Mm -hmm. Many stayed in the cemeteries overseas, but you can still find overseas little towns where you can find one or two American soldiers still buried overseas because the family decided to keep them there. It was a military buildup on a scale the world had never seen. Our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves is a history professor for the City University of New York. Mark D. Van Els reminds us of the people who changed the map of Europe during the First World War. In his book, America and World War I, A Traveler's Guide, he recommends battlefields and monuments that we can visit today. His website is markdvanels.com, spelled V-A-N-E-L-L-S. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Rick's calling from Tucson, Arizona. Rick, thanks for your call. Hi, guys. How are you? Doing good. Do you have a comment for Mark? Yes. We, we had an opportunity a few years ago to uh, 
out to Juverny, and while we were there, we spent a week, or not a week, sorry, a day, going out and driving and finding some of these World War One sites, these little villages that many of them had almost been destroyed, and reading the plaques and the histories and all the issues, how that's still, I think, pretty close to the surface for many of those French villages. I most was interested in that I had a great aunt who it turned out he had been a nurse just behind the front lines in World War One at what would have been the precursor of what we saw on TV, the old MASH units. And I was wondering if any of the medical care and information, if they ever run across any of that in any of the museums in France or elsewhere. Yes, there are some historical markers at some of the old hospitals, for example, um, just outside of the city of uh, Saint-Nazaire on the west coast of France is a town called Savonay. And this used to be a, a big American military hospital. It began in a schoolhouse, which is still there, and there's a plaque on the front of the schoolhouse noting the American military presence there. And then the hospital grew as time went on. And outside of town, the, the hospital grew so big uh, that they actually had to build a dam to get fresh water for the hospital and other American units in the region. So you can still find some of the remnants of these hospitals there. There are other places across France as well where there were hospitals. Some are marked by markers, some are not. I mention them in my book, but there were several hundred American hospitals of various kinds or another across France, Britain. Uh, no American nurses were killed in the war, but many did die of disease. There is a cemetery outside of Paris called Seren, and there you'll find a number of, you find American nurses buried in other places as well, but there in particular, because Paris had lots of hospitals and these sorts of things, you can find American nurses who died of disease buried there as well. Nurses weren't, you know, there was sexism in the military too. So nurses had an officer's rank, but they oftentimes didn't get the respect of soldiers. And so they were in kind of a, a gray area militarily. You know, Mark, you point out that, uh, well, 55,000 Americans died in combat in World War I. Uh, more than that even died because of disease out in, in the battlefield. And I know in, in the Civil War, more people died uh, from disease among the soldiers than actual combat. The Union managed to have a better system of hospitals, and that was actually a kind of a military tool to keep your soldiers alive from disease. That is a major thing, isn't it, how you're able to combat disease? Uh, you can lose as many people by doing poorly in that as you could by doing poorly on the front. Oh, absolutely. Um, now, by the early 20th century, of course, people had a better idea of how diseases were spread, a better I ideas about sanitation. So when they build camps, they think about, you know, where's the waste going to go and basic things like that. Um, you know, medicines help people to survive diseases and even soldiers injured on the battlefield, surgical techniques and these sorts of things allowed many people to live who would otherwise have died of their wounds. So medical care was much better. Had it not been for that great influenza epidemic, World War I would have been the first time where more soldiers were killed in battle than died of disease. That title goes to World War II instead. You know, it's interesting, uh, a lot of the, the kinds of injuries that an uh, army has to deal with are determined by the technology of the age. I, I was reading that after the Iraq War, or during the Iraq War, there's more head injuries because body armor was so good. Can you draw any conclusions of the kind of injuries that people dealt with or the kind of, you know, disabilities people lived with after the war? What was the character of the weaponry and so on of World War I? Yeah, there were innumerable ways to be killed. It's hard to generalize about that. I guess I could say that more soldiers were able to survive their wounds. The general ratio was that for every one soldier killed, 
two would be wounded. So there are more soldiers coming home with uh, medical disabilities like that, losing limbs, diseases acquired in the military like tuberculosis. But World War I also introduced us to the term shell shock, which we now refer to today as post-traumatic stress disorder. That, too, had been part of warfare for a very long time. It wasn't necessarily new. But World War I did seem to play very heavily on the mines, and more people survived combat. And so you begin to, and there were more people in the military as well, and that these were mass armies. Basically, every young man in Europe and a good number of young men in America were actually in the military. So those psychological, the psychological impact of war is going to be more pronounced. So it became part of the American conversation, came back briefly at the end of World War II, and not till the Vietnam War did we really recognize this as a fact of war. Rick, that's interesting for your uh, your future travels, I think. It's uh, great information to have, and I'm sorry I didn't ask my great aunt more. She, you know, showed me the the pieces of shrapnel that come through the tent as they were operating, and and I wish I would have asked more questions because it's a fascinating subject. You know, Rick, the Imperial War Museum in London does a great job at humanizing war. It's not just a bunch of heavy weaponry, but it really has an intimate look at the impact of war on families and race and women's issues and medicine and and all sorts of things. So next time you're in London, be sure to check out the Imperial War Museum. Great idea. Thanks very much. Okay, thanks for your call. Bye-bye. Mark, we talked about cemeteries, and of course, uh, at Verdun, you've got the, the ossuary, and you've got just a field of endless crosses. It's important when we do remember World War I, what a terrible toll it took on the European countries. How would you uh, give us a sense of, of how many British and how many French and how many German soldiers died compared to their total populations? Yeah, they lost people in the millions, uh, and especially of that generation born in the 1890s in France and Germany and places like this. I mean, literally 30% or more of young men were killed. So imagine Mm. 30% of your high school graduating Mm. class not coming back. I mean, so the demographic impact Mm. was just absolutely tremendous in a way that, you know, we Americans today can't really conceive of. Professor Mark D. Van Els and the book America and World War I, A Traveler's Guide, thanks so much for helping us be mindful of World War I a century later. Oh, my pleasure. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to Hawaii Public Radio and the Radio Foundation in New York City for studio help. You can listen again on demand and find guest information and the details for each week's show. It's updated weekly in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Join us again next time for more travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.